0: To read more about thinking, being, life and philosophy, and to claim a 10% discount on Routledge Philosophy books, go to www.routledge.com forward slash philosophy. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Throughout January, we have been examining ourselves and the world around us in our series of podcasts on the theme, Brave New World, Brave New You. We knew we couldn't get through this month without at least one episode on the theme of mindfulness, the practice of being in the present moment. But how helpful is being in the present moment? Is letting our minds wander really such a bad thing? In our episode this week, Barry C. Smith asks the panel, what is more important, thinking or being?
1: So Socrates said that the unexamined life wasn't worth living and John Stuart Mill asked people whether they would rather be Socrates dissatisfied or the pig satisfied. But should we always be putting such a stress on reflection and thinking and and analysis or should we just try to get back into living more in the moment? So I've got a very distinguished panel here to explore these issues with me and on my right is Professor Robert Eagleston, who is a Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Raw Holloway College, University of London. On my left we have Sam Roddick, who is an artist, activist and entrepreneur. Sam was the founder of the wonderful uh, sex boutique Coco de Mer. And on my far left we have Peter York, broadcaster, management consultant, cultural commentator So I'm delighted to have all of them talking to you on this topic, should we just be, should we think? And I'm going to invite Bob Eagleston to start us off.
2: If we assume the Greeks invented sort of Western philosophy,
1: Greek philosophy arose out
2: of the, the practice of doing things. They found they were making ships, they found they were building houses, they found they were running farms, they found they were running states, running policies, running communities. And they found they were doing these things and from the doing arose reflection. One of the things that's characteristic of Greek philosophy is it always arises out of concrete things. So geometry comes out of measuring the earth. And some people say philosophy comes out of people interacting together in the polis, in the, in the agora, talking about things. And it's with the arising of philosophy, of sort of thinking about things that being first comes to exist, and that sounds the wrong way around. But if you're just doing something and not thinking about it, that thing isn't a thing yet. It's only when you've got something to compare it with that it becomes a thing. That's the invention of this binary opposition between thinking and being. And as soon as it was invented, okay, it became a problem. first became a problem because Plato thought that only thinking, okay, made you better, stronger and better at ruling and being in charge of people. OK, so thinking became elite and commanding and being became what farmers and shipwrights did. And that, that idea stays powerfully through all of thought. But as it, as it develops, it develops a weird counter reflectionist which is when the people who discovered that they were thinking and not just being, they suddenly realised that thinking wasn't quite so fun or powerful after all, because in fact, the philosopher kings didn't get to rule the world and, and so on. And so lots of thinkers Spent their time trying not to think, but just to be. So they're thinking about trying to be. Which is, you can see how complicated that is. And see, he's only got three minutes. I'm going to rush straight from Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle, of course, says, you know, you learn to think things by doing things right the way through to Heidegger. Wow. Yeah, see? (laughs) um, So it's not two and a half thousand years, it's beginning and the end, or beginning and near the end. Near the end. Near the end. And what Heidegger says is that... um, He's a classic example of somebody who sees that we do things and that when we're doing something like, I guess, playing tennis or driving a car, you sort of lose yourself. You're sort of outside yourself. And then you suddenly stop and think, and you sort of find yourself again. But his question is, which is the most real kind of self? When he's talking about tools, for example, he has this really complicated thing. Took me years to understand when I was a student. He says that when you're using a hammer, the hammer disappears in its use, okay? And what he means by that is that when you're hammering, you're not thinking about the hammer and its weight and its heft and the, the shape of its shaft or anything like that. You're thinking instead about getting the nail in. Or When you're driving your car, you're not thinking it's this sort of car, you're just driving it. It disappears in use. And that's like ourselves, our thinking selves. When we're doing something, our self disappears in its use. And it's only when we stop and sort of think that it sort of comes back and we all know from our own experience when we're doing something we're often unreflectively at our happiest and so when we stop and think about it that we start to find ourselves in problems however thinking about things what education is called metacognition also helps us do things so it's been quite a complicated binary opposition all the way through western european
0: thought There's definitely times to be an experience, like within sex, when you're wanting to uh, engage in something deeply pleasurable. You want to vacate your mind and get lost in the experience in order to kind of really maximise the pleasure that is at hand. However, I want to talk about two people that changed my thinking about thinking. And one is a man that I visited in Louisiana in a prison called Angola. And he is a friend of my family's, And he basically is the longest serving solitary confinement prisoner in the world. And thinking for him has been a matter of survival. And he has seen and witnessed and heard people around him who also are solitary confinement prisoners that have actually kind of been lost in the madness of the obscene cruelty of being kept away from society and having the sensual experience of existence. And the only way that when I talk to Albert that he says that how does he survive and being the longest surviving kind of solitary confinement prisoner, he, he is completely dependent on the way he thinks. And that actually the occupation of thinking and the quality of how he thinks is the key for him maintaining his sanity. And what I find really interesting about him is how he contextualizes his experience. His experiences isn't about him. His experience is about him as a Black Panther, a Black Afro-American, who has experienced an extreme kind of marginalization. Um, and hasn't had his freedom in the greater society as a young black man. He sees himself in prison is the same as his um, community outside of uh, prison. They're all prisoners of circumstance. So he has contextualized his experience as something that has relevance. He has relevance. He represents something for the greater community. He has become selfless. In his pain and the other person I want to talk about is a woman that I met in Rwanda who was a victim of cruel rape um, of of a wartime crime and then ended up um, getting pregnant and had HIV she was interesting in the sense that the thing that turned around her life and her capacity to engage in life was through therapy And before she engaged with an NGO that deals with HIV, she had disengaged with existence. She didn't care about eating. She hated her child because she saw her child as a product of a cruel experience. Uh, She felt that her child had no future because she had HIV. She um, didn't want to engage in um, any form of economic independence. She didn't want to get a job. She was completely and utterly paralyzed by this really cruel experience. And then this group managed to get hold of her, and they gave her a phone. And they kept on phoning her and trying to get her to engage within group therapy. Finally, she decided to go, and through the group therapy, she could contextualize her experience, that she was not alone in the world, and her pain had a context, a community context. And through that, she realized her child was innocent so that created started to create a loving bond and then she realized that hiv wasn't a death sentence so she ended up wanting to engage in a future that ended up having giving gifting her with the other ngo an economic kind of entrepreneurial business within the market uh, within the local market so those are two experiences that thinking has come into healing and I think that is interesting.
1: So thinking as a way of holding on to who you are and keeping and maintaining a sense of self rather than it being about losing the self.
0: Yes, and, and also to be able to contextualise that we are a part of a bigger community that actually has value and I think that that's where I think the quality of thinking is what we really need to focus on and not just filling our lives with thought.
3: I regard this whole thing as a form of therapy and and indeed healing. (laughs) And by happy chance, by very, very happy chance in my current monumental yet slender book, (laughs) Authenticity is a Con, I deal with this issue and I hadn't realized that I'd dealt with it because I cite as a word almost equally idiotic as authenticity, one of authenticity's little friends as I put it, silly words like vibrant or creative. Never say those words, by the way. Don't, (laughs) just uh, don't get lured into this. Is the idea commonly espoused by people of a creative or high-minded kind of spontaneity. Living in the moment, spontaneity. Very much loved by that sort of person as a commendation of themselves. So people will commonly describe either themselves or people they admire as being tremendously spontaneous. They like the idea of living for the moment doing things at the drop of a hat their lives turning on a sixpence and so you imagine that perhaps Cara Delevingne if that's the way to say would you know you take from her eyebrows that she's very very much up for it and would do anything (laughs)
1: Um,
3: and I think they say this because it's a trope of a certain kind of educated person that this illustrates what a fascinating personality they've got do you know that they're really very, very interesting? And they're eternally youthful, childlike natures, untainted by the pale cast of thought. That's the, word, that's the quote, isn't it? It's is the pale cast of thought. I think it's because they're posy idiots. <laughs> uh, with, you know, personalities constructed from ready-mades. And the ideal type here in sort of semi-literary fiction is, of course, Holly Golightly but the baggage of spontaneity in all its wacky awfulness. Thinking about spontaneity for my book, so as to indict it thoroughly, I came across a very clever and amusing article in the New Statesman. In the New Statesman by somebody called Stephen Poole to describe people whose minds could turn on a sixpence, and I now very, very briefly quote myself quoting him. Um, Spontaneous people whose minds and diaries could turn on a sixpence. People are very much in touch with their inner child. Inner child is another trope of this mindfulness, turn on a sixpence rubbish. Or their own adorable idiot savon are often described as authentic. And the comparison is always with people who are narrowly planning types of people who are cautious and calculating and very highly diarized. I can't do that on a Tuesday. And so the idea of spontaneity is appealing as attractive young people, very attractive, very young people, and dogs. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> for just a few hours. But as Stephen Poole says in this very clever thing, anyone else, for any longer, it's actually more than just maddening, it's borderline mad, it's, it's sort of sociopathic. Okay, let's do this. Why don't I just bite you? You yeah, <laughs> like that. Um, uh, and he explained what he says, it hardly seems to matter that anyone who really acted to, uh, according to this ideology would be a kind of sociopath. And so there is a great case for examining. It's our joy and our burden, as educated 21st century people, to think it's, it's our joy and our burden, and we've got to. It's our joy to think things as well as doing things. And without all that thinking, I would say, the doing wouldn't be so good. It couldn't be so good. The sex wouldn't be so wonderful. Think of all the things that people do now through thought and engineering and advanced pharmacology to make sex more wonderful. Do you know, so much of it is in the mind. And the highest highs are higher with a bit of thought about it first. So, if you get people who are highly educated, and you administer the same psychotropic drugs as to people who aren't, you get get a more fancy description, and you may they have a they have a high high, um, the joy of a view, or I mean, the Victorian joy of a view, or a painting, or all that stuff is greatly enhanced when you've got some precedents and stuff in your head, so you enjoy it more. So that's a good reason for doing it, because it reminds you of what, say, people talked about and what you've read about. So The Examined Life, you can't avoid it, and you'll be mad to try, and it's only for people like Holly Golightly or Cara Delavine or for that matter, Kate Tempest, um, <laughs> uh, I say that in a caring way, uh, not uh, to avoid, to avoid uh, the
1: examined life. Does thinking really lead to a happier life? Does it create happier people who we want to be with? So Hamlet said there is no good or bad but thinking makes it so. Now there was a character who was much given to reflection, not very much in the moment I think, but someone who didn't look as though he was having a particularly good time or even spreading the joy and the love to those around him. So, are we, are we overvaluing the idea that this kind of reflection and thought, Peter, is really going to make us happier? Well,
3: I mean, the pale cast of thought, all those things of, you, you know, heavy baggage on people who do thinking, uh, and uh, the idea of ivory towers, the idea that if you did a lot of thinking, you wouldn't do a lot of doing, uh, all part of the baggage of the Daily Mail worldview. And it isn't so. A lot of people who do a lot of thinking do a lot of brainless sex as well. The things are much, much more intermixed than anybody ever says. There are very few people except for possibly Stephen Hawkins, who is entirely a creature of thought.
1: So I want to come back to brainless sex, if I may, because I want to bring Sam in on this. Sam was very passionate and eloquent about the need for thinking and reflection, in particular cases. But you've also been a... a a huge champion of us talking about and being more liberated in our attitudes to sex and surely sex is very much about being in the moment peter may want the thinking to go on to create the better opportunity but once you're there isn't isn't the moment much more important
0: well i think one person in say two people having sex can definitely do the thinking and the other person can definitely do the experiencing or both people can experience But you do want to bring a lot of creativity to the table in order to kind of have an offering. But I do feel that thinking in its inherentness is useless unless you give it a direction. And actually the direction not necessarily should be happiness. I don't believe in this concept that we should be happier. What I think we should really focus on is how, do we, how can we reduce suffering? Mm. And so when you think about sex, this sexual ecstasy is not going to occur unless there's safety. Right, the people feel safe and in order to be able to have a safe sexual society we really need to give it a lot more thought because right now as a society we do not have sexual safety in our primary thinking so there's a lot of sex slavery that's going on there is a lot of rape that is continuing there's a lot of misogyny and really unhappy porn that is being produced so we've really got to do a bit more thinking about it in order to allow us to have a happier and safer society, or actually a society that can suffer less.
1: So there's a bit of pre-thinking that's to go on and a bit of thinking for the context, and, yeah. then, and then we can let go. Let I, go, I,
0: yeah. I Do you want
2: to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
1: And I I, I wondered whether, hearing uh, Bob Eagleston in his opening remarks questioning the dichotomy, whether you're a fan of putting the two together. So the, the motto of Sussex University is apparently, be still and know, which is supposed to lead you to a higher form of thought. Now, are you committed to the idea that when things are going well, you have what the psychologist Chitza Mahali said was uh, a form of flow, that the thinking and the being actually just meld together and that we don't have to pull them apart.
2: Well, I really like that idea of flow, but uh, I wonder whether there's another Heidegger word which might also uh, help us um, pull some of the things apart, which replaces what both Peter and Sam said, which is uh, attunement. Mm. So some of the things that Peter were talking about, uh, I guess about sex or about listening to music or about uh, doing things is it a question of becoming attuned to things. So when I go and see uh, gigs of my friends who play instruments, because they understand music better, they're more literally attuned to it. But all the activities we do, whether they're sex or plowing a field or talking, we become, as we become better at it, we become more attuned to it, more able to pull out subtle differences and understand it better. So some of those things, I think, are are things not of thinking, but of attunement. So that's one thing I think is really interesting the other thing I thought was interesting that we all talked about was how thinking is sort of fundamentally a social thing Mm. and it's something that we do something we do together and in relation to uh, what Sam was talking about it's it's exactly about bringing different sorts of thinking together so we try and think those things in a unified way so we don't just live lives, one bit of our life is sex, one bit of our life is uh, work, one bit of our life is how we feel about trying to do good. We try and think about those as a sort of unified whole. That's also quite a Greek idea.
1: I'm wondering whether the examined life is a little overblown. Is it, is it the case that, you know, just too much focus and question on, say, whether we're happy? We, we've got thinking as a tool to sort out problems. But we know from lots of research that when you ask people how happy they are, they're made less happy when they try to answer that question than we think they are before. So, are we are we perhaps overdoing the need for self-examination? Should we give up this quest? To ask ourselves: Are we happy yet?
0: Well, I, I, I personally think we need to give it up because I think it. Ironically, I think happiness can be perceived as a luxury because when you have like, people who are suffering you know, through poverty or kind of environmental circumstance or they're being attacked f- from a cultural perspective, happiness is not the question, the question is survival. And actually, how do you uh, survive through pain is actually much more of a fundamental question because we have been taught, I think, within the West that actually pain is unnatural but actually pain is a cycle of life. And I think one part of thinking that is really, that I personally have found really shocking was when I did a meditation, I realized how habitual my thinking was and how boring 99% of my thinking is. And I'm thinking the same habitual thoughts. And I think something like meditation as a tool can interrupt habitual thinking and k- open you up to recorrect how you spend your uh, imaginative time. Um, so, I kind of do think there is something in there that can actually aid us from being um, on the same kind of roller coaster of boring uh, thoughts that really do not assist life. So,
1: there may be good and bad thinking, yeah. maybe too much reflective thinking rather than just giving up thinking might be the I issue think for you.
0: D- d- Self centered thinking leads to unhappiness. And actually, I think personally, we need to be able to think more collectively and realize that as a collective, we are responsible for each other's happiness or, or, or we are responsible to reducing um, our collective suffering. So I want,
1: to, I want to put a little pressure on Peter York, no stranger to luxury, I think, and, and I want to not look at self-related thinking but other-related thinking. Once we've heard Peter and read Peter, we might develop all sorts of anxieties. Are we wearing the right shoes? Have we got the right color of Mac? How should we be dressing? How should we be speaking? So Peter, isn't there something about that level of reflection on exactly what we should do that might lead us to become unhappy, a little bit paranoid in the face of other people's reactions? Well, you mustn't worry about that. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, you, You mustn't worry about that. It's
3: all absolutely fine. And as it turns out, everybody uh, well, you know, every sentient being worries about their shoes and their Macs. They w- they don't want to be th- uh, thought superficial, but in fact these are the you know the greatest issues that a lot of people face. I say this quite seriously because of course um, if you read Paul Johnson's condemnation of the Beatles fans in the Spectator of 1963, where he describes them with the most absolute class-based loathing because they're worried about their shoes and their Macs, Do you know, as if they were the beasts of the field. So those things matter. You know, it's easy to poo-poo them when you're well above those concerns. You know where your next Mac is coming from. But when, it, you know, when those things are important, they're very, very symbolically important. Fashion is very important, and everything is fashion. Everything is fashion in talking you know, religion is fashion the given flow of intellectual life is fashion So don't poo-poo fashion at any point. What
1: was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I? Think you're dealing with it admirably whether or not we're creating more anxiety yeah. by being hung up about whether or not we're fitting Into the well th- the norms that, around uh, us
3: does that mean look people have always fitted into the norms around the and the, the and the idea that of course All sorts of uh, norms are being commercially preached. But just think of the order of norms if you were a sort of brought up in a Methodist mining village or something. A lot of norming going on there. Let's not see those little bits of bourgeois individualism as bad. But if we want to be collective, let's not talk about cause-related collectiveness. Join a trade union. Where that's what really matters. The decline of trade unions is ghastly. The m- monsterization of Len McCluskey by um, right-wing press is terrible. Trade un- people need trade
1: unions. Peter, I'm, I'm, <coughs> I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to you for taking us from fashion to Len McCluskey, but I'm wondering, yes. <laughs> wondering about <laughs> us opening up the topic a little too much. So, so can we come back to, to, to Bob and just concentrate on this issue about, yes, collective sharing and thinking, but there is still something about the examined life that makes you wonder whether you need to be in step with your society or whether this is a society that you personally want to change?
3: Well, I,
2: I, have, I have worries about this, this famous thing that Socrates says that, you know, only the examined life is worth living, which obviously sounds very convincing and charming and allows professors in their ivory towers to think, oh yes, my life is particularly worth living because I examine it a lot. I find myself profoundly worried about that in this sort of collective way, because I- in fact, um, to say that only examined life is worth living, there are lots of people who, for all sorts of reasons, are not able to examine their lives. Uh, and the implication is that unless you are a, um, a sort of philosophy king person, unless you are somebody who's reflecting on their life and so on, you're not valuable. And that works both for uh, people who can't reflect their life because they're trying to keep body and soul together in all sorts of ways, but also for other sorts of people who may not be able to think. Uh, in, in uh, thinking might be limited in, in, uh, by medical conditions and so on. And are we the sort of people who say these lives are not worth living? So I, I think really that's the remark of Socrates, which is taken up all the way through the Renaissance and people keep quoting it all the time. In fact, has a really serious and pernicious edge to it, which we might want to be very anxious about. It's, it's what we do together and how we come to conclusions together in through sort of public debate, through things like these, but also through things like elections and so on,
1: which helps us think as a society. So we've had a lot of examination and reflection. There's a lot of thinking going on here and, and actually valuing of thinking, but there are times when we really do want to be in the moment. So I'm going to just try to invite you and start, start with you, Sam, to, to think of if we have times when we live in the moment, how do we do it?
0: Well, we turn off our devices would be one. I think one of the most important aspects of not thinking is observing, because actually you don't have to think when you observe, but actually you are kind of engaging. You're engaging with your senses, and I think that actually our perceptions are very much affected by our senses, and it allows us to have that time to be able to absorb. And I think that is an incredible kind of aid to thinking in itself. So I do think that being observatory, particularly say for instance in nature, gives us an incredible amount of information and it re-engages us. We start to observe actually what is going on around us and we can take lock stock and smoking barrel. So I'm I'm hearing
1: in that, something in that which um, risking Peter's ire might be another of those little friends of authenticity, namely mindfulness. So do you think there's something to be said for
0: the current trend towards mindfulness? I think mindfulness has a goal to something, which I don't know if I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, What I'm interested in is how to engage in life, and I'm interested in how to change behaviour, I find that fascinating. Because behaviour is something that we ascribe ourselves to having very little control over Mm -hmm. in many different circumstances. Like the behaviour of our economic system that's actually quite unthinking because it's only there to serve its own growth. Well, if we could underpin our economic system with a philosophy that was to advance and to protect humanity, we'd be in a lot better situation globally than we are today and war wouldn't be so profitable, right? I
1: hear, I hear you going down the Len McCluskey route here.
0: Sorry. So I'm going to, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, so at that stage... S- s- but so if we could observe mm-hmm. and take the time to watch what is going on instead of just feeling like we're on the conveyor belt of behaviour, then I think that we would be able to change our, uh, the way that we behave a lot quicker.
1: Okay, so I'm going to let Peter off the leash on mindfulness. Peter. Well, what is it you must know? You,
3: who knows what mindfulness is? Um, um, I don't know. I don't know what mindfulness is, but I will admit to being against it, not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> I must admit to being against it, despite not absolutely, completely knowing what it is, because of the sort of lame brain people who espouse it. Do you know, because it, it belongs in sort of dotty therapy land. So uh, I assume uh, that it's silly. Um, uh, now, uh, I may be entirely wrong. You
1: will tell me. So I, I, I just must, I, I want Bob to come in and, and give us a, a little more on this, but just to remind the audience that there are lots of very eminent neuroscientists who are actually spending a lot of the welcome uh, trust money on this to try and find out what it is about and how people, it works. Uh,
3: people use neuroscience to explain a lot of things which it doesn't.
1: Yes, that's totally.
3: Uh, true. It's been so far wonderful though it is, it's been so far rather disappointing uh, in y- yielding useful results. It will eventually if you take neuroscience uh, as a way of uh, helping education uh, um, you do it a lot better by giving uh, poor children a square meal every day than by encouraging pictures of their brains with brightly coloured auras.
1: Okay, I'm going to hold my tongue and ask uh,
3: Bob to respond.
2: I I think what what Peter says is is right for for the reasons that people say, oh, you must live in the moment and be mindful. In fact, and this ties up with what Peter was saying about spontaneity. In fact, what we are, what we are as existing things, we're living in one second, but also we're shaped by our past, and all the things from our, our past, which shape our language, it shapes how we think about things, it shapes how we understand things, and we're also shaped by our future, not just, you know, what am I gonna have for lunch, but how am I gonna be in the future, what's gonna happen in the future? And these, these three things, the past, present, and the future, exist in us all at the same time. So saying, oh, we gonna be mindful just of the present, it's just not possible, it's like not breathing air, because we are totally woven into time. Way.
1: but you also had the idea of uh the hammering away hammering by heidegger heidegger yeah. hammering where where you know two hands there's this well, object and we seem to be just consumed with the very act of doing but it.
2: then that's that's where, y- where the the, that's where the things disappear into use well let's just take let's take as a counterintuitive example let's take uh, a lame therapist using mindfulness as an idea and i agree but if it, if it was useful for somebody and they found being mindful useful and it helped them with their life, they wouldn't be saying to themselves, oh, be mindful,
1: be mindful, be mindful.
2: They'd just be using the idea, and the idea and its lameness would disappear into its use, if that makes sense. I think it
1: does. I mean, We, we, we should point out that since, since we're struggling to find what mindfulness is doing, in the case of obesity and a lot of overeating, people seem to notice that when people are eating their food in front of TV, they eat quicker and they eat more. Whereas if they're actually stopping to look at what's on the plate, seeing the size of it, predicting how they're going to feel from eating each part, and even if they're involved in the preparation, they tend to eat less. So by making people aware of the act they're actually committing actually seems to have an effect on their choice and decision and judgment. And uh, I think that's partly what mindfulness is about. And
2: that's also one of the things, of course, that art does. I mean, the job of a, uh, an artwork is to draw attention to, to its own stuffiness, to its own thinginess. So when you see a sculpture, beautiful sculpture, you pay attention not just to the shape but also to the the texture of the stone. And and that's, again, art is constantly drawing your attention to things and making you think about them.
1: We're we're aware of things when they work beautifully, but but we don't want to be too aware of them. We want to actually, as as you were saying, Sam, turn off a little bit, let some of these things go.
0: Yeah, I think that... To experience something, you actually have to get into that state of observation. Mm-hmm. And that state of observation is thrilling. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Do we need to spend more time thinking, or being, or thinking about being? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.